Hi, everyone. This is Mind Rolling with David Silver and myself, Raghu Marcus. And I'm happy as a lark today because David's back. We missed him last week, and he's all better. Right, Dave? Are yeah, you? Um, yeah, a little, little nasal, but, you know. I'll take the nasal, okay, over the fact that I had I was lost and alone in the dark. It, it happens in life, this, this strange know. journey of togetherness and aloneness, the yeah. ACDC thing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm happy to be back. Thank so, before we get the proceedings going, we have to make a major, major announcement. Okay? We are finally launching our crowdfunding Indiegogo campaign to help support this incredible expansion of uh, audience and community that has developed over the last, it's like six, seven months, Dave. It's unbelievable. And obviously, uh, it's just a strong pull to partake in all of the the wisdom that MindPod Network is offering through all these different teachers, and the, and and we've added on other people, and uh, it's it's just a pretty gratifying. But we need help because uh, we're like uh, I don't know what they would call this in England, Dave. One arm paper hangers. Do you have <laughs> a term for that in England? No, but it, it's a good way of describing. It. I mean, we set this going, our team of of. Uh, people uh of which there are quite a few now and and it it grew exponentially and rather surprisingly in a way and now we need in order to maintain it just to maintain what we have and and refresh it and make it good and accessible uh we need we need funds we need help so crowd sharing is a wonderful invention in my opinion the democratization of of the corporate world (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it allows us to ask you in in um, in sincerity that we 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 need we need to grow it, but we need to keep a pace with the growing uh, by uh, asking for help from you, our community, who've been so loyal to us. So, and it's, it's a large community, Dave. I mean, just hitting the website, uh, there's uh, three, four, five thousand people a day taking advantage not only of the podcast but all these wonderful uh, articles and videos and uh, SoundCloud items, uh, audio items that we have put together. And uh, and there's like, uh, it's moving on to half a million people downloading all the different podcasts because we've added on other people. And so uh, it's, so there's a definite pull on the part of the community uh, uh, because of the mail that we get and the communications that we get, to have us provide uh, more than what we are providing right now. And, and one of the top things that we're talking about is that uh, it's, it's funny how this is working, and uh, it's true. More people are, going, are using, of course, their smartphones and tablets than ever before. And they're not bothering to go to websites necessarily. They want it all available in an instant on their uh, on their device, smartphone or tablet device. So we have been prompted to pull together an app, 
an, uh, a smartphone tablet app uh, f- that will serve as a hub for all of these things that we're pulling together. And uh, the other thing that uh, is very much part of delivering uh, new content through this app is uh, online courses and uh, audio albums and push notifications. So, Dave, you're going to be able to, uh, when this app is ready, after we do the funding for it, you're going to be able to get, for instance, just one little thing. You're going to get a timer, a meditation timer. And you will also have the uh, option to... uh, to uh, stream any one of uh, a half a dozen or a dozen different meditations. Okay, so think of it. You wake up in the morning. You're woken up, okay, 7 o'clock in the morning, and ding, you get the uh, option to, okay, today we're going to have a Ramdas in a guided meditation on uh, the uh, loving awareness. And uh, you'll be able to just start your day that way. That's just one of the things that this app will be so conducive to a daily practice. That's really what we're trying to get to is really how can we help each other with uh, a daily practice and and with ways in which we can really uh, balance our lives. So uh, and the other thing that we're pulling together and and this is uh, David and I. Uh, with uh, a bunch of other people that are going to have to help us, which is engineers and editors and uh, curators and so on, is called the Life in Balance audiobook. So we're going to put together a whole, um, it'll be a a course, and for, uh, that'll be, you know, I don't know, an hour and a half or two hours uh, that people will be able to access that will have Dharma Talks, from Krishna Das and Ram Das and Lama Surya Das and uh, and uh, Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield and by the way Dave newly arrived will be Joseph Goldstein and so these are just uh, it's it's our coterie of core teachers who really really uh, we identify with in terms of what you and I set out to do with mind rolling. Okay, those two years ago, or more, which was to really be able to provide this, uh, what our associations with these teachers and our own experience with practical wisdom just to help on a day-to-day basis. So that that just is a little bit of a review of the kinds of things that we want to do and that we need to do and we're being asked to do. And now, uh, in order to do that, we're asking people to, everybody, all you guys out there, to help support us by uh, going to uh, the Indiegogo page, which you will find uh, when you go to mindpodnetwork.com. There's these beautiful banners that we've created, our friend Miles Seiden created for us, that will link you right over to the page, and you can see the video that we put together, and you can see all of the all of the descriptions of the things that I just mentioned and what we have been doing and what we want to do. And then, of course, for your donations, there are these perks. And we have some really wonderful stuff from a beautiful poster of Ram Dass and and some of the original Be Here Now talks uh, that are downloads that we'll get to you. 
to Krishnadas DVDs and music to uh, books from all of these teachers in, in, a, in a big uh, combined seven or eight books uh, to a beautiful, I'm really proud of this, Dave, uh, which is this box. I had this box made in India with some friends of mine who helped me out, and it's, uh, it's, it's our mindfulness box. And it contains a beautiful meditation shawl and a mala so that you can do mantras on. And, um, and, and of course, uh, there's the incense and the incense holder. And then a way do you see, you haven't even seen this beautiful picture of Buddha oh. and Hanuman that we'll have there as an altar picture. And, uh, and then a couple of books uh, from Pema Chodron and Thich Nhat Hanh that we're going to include in this. And then the coup d'etat is going to be meditations, again, from these teachers that will be on a little uh, thumb drive that you'll be able to just uh, download onto your uh, device. So uh, it, this, is a, uh, this is our kind of core perk that I'm really proud of that we put together. So, and if you just want to donate, by the way, you can just go in there and donate. You don't need to, you know, you don't have to get a perk. So that's, that's our story and we're sticking to it. So. Yeah. And, you know, just my thought, one of my thoughts on this, which is just the way I feel about things, is that uh, it's summer coming up and many of us go out, like to go outside when we have some spare time. And the app uh, is, is, is perfect for that. Because, I mean, you just can't carry a laptop or even your tablet. You like a phone when you're going to a park or to a, a river to sit by or whatever it is, that, wherever you go. And the app will facilitate just roaming around MindPod Network wherever you want to go and tuning into whatever you want and having it all there in the palm of your hand. And I think that's really important because sometimes people make apps and they mystify me because they're not that different from, you know, just going to the website. But this is not the case with MPN. Uh, the team has really worked hard to make it so you can access just about anything and wherever you are. So you're, you're walking with the words of the wise, really. And I walk. I'm a walker and a runner. And I know uh, some people don't like to listen to this stuff, but if you if you can just listen to some Joseph Goldstein or some... Sharon Salzberg or Ram Das or any of our, our, our friends and teachers, while you're walking, it makes of the walking meditation something even richer. And I recommend it. So that's coming. And that's why we're doing this crowd sharing thing with Indiegogo, because we want this to be smooth, smooth transition, and for everybody to have access to this. So we're doing this, you know, for the community that's been created. And um, if you can't, contribute then tell someone about it yeah that's the uh, other thing certainly sure. getting the word out yeah absolutely dave by the way i will say one thing because people might say to you okay you can listen to the podcast on uh, you know through the app but you can listen to it right. by just subscribing to itunes which is absolutely right. true but here's here's one thing about it aside from these push notifications that you're going to get in uh, during the day of w whatever you ask for, for beautiful wisdom videos and audio, you know, stuff that we've curated from the podcast and from these teachers that'll help on a daily basis. But for instance, if you do want to just listen to an app and you're like David and you're just running through the park uh, and then you suddenly sit down and go, geez, wow, I, I, that thing that Joseph just said, gee, I'd like to just 
be able to read a transcription. You're going to have instant access, Dave, to transcriptions, show notes, right there and then. You don't have to go, wow, Joseph said something. I'd like to write it down to remember it. You're going to have it right there through the app. So this really? is, That's yeah. Great, I didn't know that. Yeah, and this is some of the things that define the app as as opposed to go, either, right. either getting a, uh, a subscription uh, to the, uh, to whatever teacher, you know, whatever podcast through iTunes. This separates it apart from that and, and from the website. So there's unique things associated with this app. And we're still developing this. We've got a guy started to work on it, our friend Yaron, and uh, we absolutely are... Uh, just still kind of getting from the from our community what it is that they want and need. We've done we've done a. Did you know we did a survey recently? Yeah, I I, I answered the survey myself. Oh, you did. Okay, good. I did. <laughs> All right. So I think we we've uh, we've uh, really uh, told our story here, and uh, so uh, I think everybody gets it. But you'll really get it when you go uh, to just uh, flip over to mindpodnetwork.com, Look at the banner. Uh, I mean, just link on the banner and you'll you'll get right to the page and you'll see the video and you'll see all the text and everybody, whatever you can do to help out. I mean, this is something because this app is free, so it's available to everybody worldwide. So it's like you are part of us getting this of making this available. This is not just us. It's it. I mean, if you don't think that I don't listen to so these podcasts, like Joseph Goldstein, for instance, who is uh, certainly uh, one of my my favorite teachers and and has been, uh, uh, you're wrong because this is as important to me as an individual as it is to anybody else. So it's a really it's a it's an us. So let's uh, let's do this together. And and of course we also need uh, when I said one arm paper hanger. Uh, I meant it, and we need people to, to, to be able to pay people to put this, this stuff together on a day-to-day basis and manage the content and manage the podcast and edit them and so on and so forth. This is a, quite a lot of content. Dave, let us move on. Yeah. We and, have, um, in the podcast that Raga and I do together without an interviewee, um, usually... In fact, I'd say 99% of the time, Raga comes up with um, various things that he's come across in, in journals, newspapers, uh, magazines. And uh, I'm, you know, I in my indolence, I expect them now. <laughs> so I do read them. And um, Indolence? Yeah. You, well, I mean, I could be finding stuff too. I get Shambhala. What does indolence mean? I, I want to. It means definition. what I am lazy. Oh. And it, I, why, why didn't I use the word laziness? Because I don't know why. I like using new words. It's sort of like a little perversion. But, um, you yeah, know. I wouldn't go that far. But... We, um, we have, um, actually, can we make a couple of recommendations first? Because a couple that I want to make. Yeah, uh, go ahead and make, yeah, that's good. Just and, two books, two books. Two books, uh, okay. One is The Near and the Dear uh, by Dada Mukherjee, which is available on Amazon in two versions. And I just started reading it again, so I'm recommending it. Uh, if you're interested in Maharaj or you're interested in, in, in any form of spiritual practice, uh, it's very useful to read this book. Uh, Dada was uh, Maharaj's closest associate friend, uh, Chela, I mean everything. A man of incredible academic excellence 
amount of, of such intelligence and sensitivity. I'm proud to have met him. Uh, and you trust him. You just trust this man, Dada. He's no longer with us in this plane. But uh, when I met him, I realized this was a man of pragmatic uh, truth. So when you read what he says about the guru and what he says about the situation up there in the Himalayas, uh, you believe it and it, it helps. It helps get into the vibe, into the groove of, of faith uh, without being sort of ponderous, pontificating or anything like that. So I recommend the near and the dear. You know, uh, Dave, on, um, yeah. it's funny. Sure. It's just funny. No, because you said that because we didn't talk about this before the podcast. No. But uh, when I was in Maui a month ago, whenever it was, a few weeks ago, and I went up to visit Ramdas in his room when I first got there, and he was sitting, reading that book, that exact uh, book. And I said, geez, uh, you might, you, God, over the years, you probably read this a billion times. And he was like, first time. It's the uh, first time. You know, it's the, it's because it is such a, a powerful transmission from somebody, as you say. I mean, w I, there, I mean, I have a lot of trust for quite a few people that I'm close to, right? But as you said, he was beyond, you can't even say trust. You immediately bonded with his faith. I mean, I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, we, we got a comment on uh, the podcast last week that um, Raga did with Duncan and Saraswati and Jared, uh, which is great, and I recommend you listen to it, um, uh, from our friend Iron Mountain. Uh, saying that he just did not like to hear about miracles. And I understand his, mm. his skepticism and so forth. He's a very intelligent and I think rather brilliant man. And, and, and I recommend this book to you, Iron, because this is a guy who was no fake, no phony, no Bible puncher, no nothing. He was a professor of economics, uh, of economics and a, a terrific mind. And wait till you read this book. Just read it and then imbibe it and help yourself. I, I don't want to send that patronizing. It helps me. That's why I'm reading it. The other book I recommend, uh, Raga recommended to me. And uh, as usual, Raga's recommendations are the best. Um, <laughs> it's called The Miraculous 16th Karmapa. Mm. Incredible Encounters with the Black Crown Buddha. Uh, it's on Amazon. It takes a while to get to you. And I swear to God. And I don't use that expression that often. As it took a month or five weeks to get to me, because it comes from a, a small bookseller somewhere. And I got more and more and more excited as the days came by that it didn't come. Because I just knew that the story of the 16th Karmapa, and therefore, by logic, the story of the 17th Karmapa, uh, would be incredible. And this, is, this book is done in such a way by many, many, many direct observers of the Karmapas including our dear friend uh, Lama Suryadas, who writes several pieces, and his pieces are just incredible. And I'm about halfway through the book, and I can't put it down, and I know I'm just going to be reading this for the rest of my life. Hmm. Because, again, what you're talking about are miracles. Now, we know the greatest miracle is the miracle of love. We don't have to keep talking about that. We know that's true. But for people like me, who grew up in a fairly uh, non-believing, uh, agnostic uh, environment, this book just is the creme de la creme, because it's people who knew him, incredible people, tulkus and lamas, as well as people like Michael Hollingshead, who was a, a friend of Keith Richards and Paul McCartney, and, and that level of person also writes in this book. 
but some of the some of the uh, pieces are by Rinpoches, who are of themselves of great lineage, incredibly important lineages. And uh, the Karmapa is sort of on an equal level. For those of you who don't know, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama has a different. Uh, he's the head of a different Kagyu um, uh, lineage, but uh, it's the same deal. And the 16th, as Raghu knows because he met him, was an amazing man. And the other thing about this book that I must say is that it has numerous photographs in it, which helps. And one of the things, and I'm not going to say much more about the book, I just want to say this. When you see a picture of the 16th Karmapa and then his lineage holder, the 17th Karmapa, they look alike. (laughs) And who knew that when the kid was four years old? But when you see these pictures together, you see what the meaning of, of transmission is. And it's a, an incredible book, and I highly recommend you getting it. The Miraculous 16th Karmapa, Incredible Encounters with the Black Crown Buddha, and with a foreword by the 17th Karmapa, Ogien Trinley Dorhe. And, um, you know, just get this book. I, I'm telling you, mm-hmm. it's worth it. And the wait, the four weeks wait, you'll get more and more into it, and then when it comes, you will not be disappointed. So those are my recommendations. Mm, those are great. By the way, the 17th Karmapa at Harvard, in a talk that he gave... Uh, the woman said just what you just said, who introduced him, said, it's pretty amazing that if you, you look at the, the 16th and the 17th, the 17th, he looks, they look so alike. Nice. It's uh, amazing. And so uh, Karmapa 17th, uh, as he, he started to talk, he said, yeah, actually, I've done some plastic surgery to get it like that. <laughs> He's very funny. Yeah, yeah, he's true. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm. Before we get into, actually, I know you were going to go somewhere uh, with one of these articles that we talked about, and uh, and I do want to get there, but I unfortunate. Well, it's not unfortunate. I have another. It's potentially end of the world, stuff. Aha. Aha. Yeah, and, and we haven't had it around for. It's I don't even. It's an anthropological study. Okay. That okay, this woman who's an anthropologist, right? She went, uh, she moved just by accident or whatever. She she moved to the Upper East Side of New York, of Manhattan, and she started. She had her kids and everything, and so she started associating with the mothers at the school, just like you normally do, and so on and so forth. And and um, she started to realize that there was a tribe here. This was a tribe, and she had studied tribes in Africa and so on. And she realized, oh, my God, there's a tribe here. I'm going to study them. She actually studied these people for <laughs> six years, and they knew that who she was and that what she was doing. Uh, and she came to call uh, the, the Glam Sams for glamorous stay-at-home moms of her new habitat. Uh, and she says, my culture shock with these people was immediate and comprehensive. Okay, so these are women, 30-somethings with advanced degrees from prestigious universities and business school. They were married to rich, powerful men, many of whom who ran hedge funds or private equity funds, right? And uh, they had three or four children under the age of 10, and they lived, uh, I won't even tell you where they lived, but on the Upper East Side, um, and and they toiled in what sociologist Sharon Hayes calls intensive mothering, exhaustively enriching their children's lives by virtually every measure, then advoc- advocating for them anxiously and sometimes ruthlessly in the linked high-stakes game of social jockeying and school admissions. Okay, so we, 
that's kind of a archetypical, right, Upper East Side mom thing. Yeah. Uh, their self-care was no less zealous or competitive. No ponytails or mom jeans here as they exercised themselves to a razor's edge, wore expensive and exquisite outfits to school drop-off, and looked a decade younger than they were. Okay? Many ran their homes, plural, like CEOs, right? Okay, so <laughs> she figured her anthropo- anthropological background would help her out. So she was, uh, you know, this elite tribe and its practices made for a fascinating story. So she went into it, right? Um, this is just amazing what she found. And it is, I don't know if it qualifies for the end of the world, but it certainly is, is something. And, and uh, you guys uh, uh, who uh, are a female persuasion that are, uh, women's liberation or anything or caring at all for women's rights um, are going to come up in arms with this when you actually hear it. Um, they actually were cloistered from men. Okay. Cloistered from men. They, all of their social activities were girls night out, luncheons, trunk shows, shopping for a cause events, flyaway parties on private planes and the men said, we prefer it, okay? <laughs> the men said, we prefer it, and she was told this at a dinner party where husbands and wives sat at entirely different tables in entirely different rooms, Dave. What? Okay, this is going on now in Manhattan. You can pop over there. Uh, going? Sex segregation, I was told, was a choice but like choosing not to work or a Dogon woman in Mali's choosing to go into a menstrual hut. Okay, this is it. It struck me as a state of affairs possibly giving clue to some deeper, meaningful reality while masquerading like a reveler at the Save Venice Ball the women attended every spring as a simple preference. And then there's the wife bonuses. Okay, bonuses. They were handing out bonus. The annual wife bonus was not an uncommon practice in this tribe. This is like Zulus that we finally found in Manhattan. Uh, what are the bonuses? A wife bonus might be hammered out in a prenup or post-up and distributed on the basis of not only how well her husband's fun had done, but her own performance. Okay? How well she managed the home budget, mm. whether the kids got into a good school, and in the same way that their husbands were rewarded, were rewarded at investment banks. In turn, these bonuses were a ticket to a modicum of financial independence and participation in a social sphere where you don't just go to lunch, you buy a 10 grand table at the benefit luncheon a friend is hosting. Okay, you need to have those bonuses in order to do that. Women who didn't get them joked about possible sexual performance metrics. What? Okay. Yeah. Um, of course, they demurred about talking about that. The more stratified and hierarchical the society and the more sex-educated, the lower the status of women. Okay? Hmm. So, um, hmm. among primates, homo sapiens, homo sapiens practice the most intensive food and resource sharing, and females may depend entirely on males for shelter and sustenance. Okay. Female birds and chimps never stop searching out food to provide for themselves and their young. 
whether they are Hadza women who spend almost as much time as men foraging for food, Agta women of the Philippines participating in the hunt, or Kung women of southern Africa foraging for tubers and roots that can tide a band over when there is no meat from a hunt. Okay, so this is the comparison to these to these tribes. As in the Kalahari uh, desert and rainforests, resources are the bottom line on the Upper East Side. If you don't bring home tubers and roots, uh, your power is diminished in your marriage and in the world. All right? And Rich, this is, you know, I'm sorry, I was just going to say that if those of you that watch Mad Men and lament its ending will see that the roots of this, the roots of this particular anthropological phenomenon were probably in the 50s when men started to be corporate giants way after World War II. And, and, and the women were just sort of home in Westchester, like Betty and like Roger Sterling's wife, and just simply spent money and got together every so often. And, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting. And one has to ask, what else would they do? I mean, in other words, uh, if they were feminists in the, in the classic 60s, 70s tradition, they wouldn't do this, presumably. This is insane uh, to me. I, can you believe this? It's so, this yeah. The last word on it is, the wives of the masters of the universe, I learned, are a lot like mistresses, dependent and comparatively disempowered, just sensing the disequilibrium, the abyss that separates her version of power from her man's, might keep a thinking woman up at night. Mm. This is going on in this age? Yeah. By the way, uh, this is from, it's called Poor Little Rich Women, and it's by Wednesday Martin, a writer and research, uh, social researcher in New York and the author of the forthcoming, forthcoming memoir, Primates of Park Avenue, a book that <laughs> we can actually read. No, I mean, I, I, I know some of these women. Uh, because of of uh, my significant other and her fundraising, uh, and some of them are remarkable women, and, and let's not you know tar everybody with the same brush. But I don't think we're quite talking about people who are sincerely involved in humanitarian causes. They're involved in a social setup, right? Yeah, a, 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 a system which clearly. I mean, when you said they they sit in different rooms, that blew my mind. Can you because, believe that? I've never heard of anything like that. No, I want to go to one of them and just be with the women, of course. Um, <laughs> but that's an amazing thing because it's kind of serious in a way. I know it's end of the world ragu stuff, but it is weird because as New York City and London and San Francisco and Paris and Berlin and Moscow and Beijing have become centers of hedge funds and billionaires, a new culture has grown up. And you can tell when you walk around Manhattan these days who's in that culture, because you can see by the way they walk, the way they talk, where they shop, and so forth. Um, you know, it, it, it's grown from wealth. So this is kind of like a fungus attached to the side of vast mm. wealth. Because mm. no one can afford to live in Midtown anymore uh, unless they're very wealthy. You know, rents are in the five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a month range. Uh, apartments are going from anything from one point five to $60 million. Mm. Hello? So what kind of people are inhabiting these places, you know? Uh, let's not be judgmental because, we, you know, you can't totally generalize. But it is pretty amazing what you just read because that's not a satire. This is not John Stewart or John Oliver. This is real. 
Yeah. This is what people are doing. Yeah, and you're right. We shouldn't, of course, the, the people are people, and, and we can't generalize in that way. But this woman is an anthropologist, and she really, I mean, this book, we'll have to get this book and really see her yeah. work. Uh, yeah. But uh, the the reality, when you think about it, and why I say, you know, of course, I'm joking about the end of the world but in one way, but in another way, what's being passed on to the children? Do you, ever, you know, think about that. Which, which is a great um, lead-in to uh, what the, these uh, articles that you brought up earlier in the uh, podcast. Um, and particularly, uh, there's a couple of them. And this one in particular is by David Brooks, our friend who uh, uh, we've quoted before, who writes for The Times, who is a... Uh, uh, well, you can... I, I don't want to... Well, I mean, he's a Republican. Uh, him. He's uh, a Republican, okay. Yeah, Conservative. But, uh, when um, when George W. first started talking about compassionate conservatism, it was something of a slogan, I think. But, uh, I mean, just an empty slogan. But uh, Brooks, who I saw on my man Chris Matthews' show last week, and Chris Matthews is hardly a conservative, and to give him his due has been a, a, a progressive a journalist and observer of society and politics for 45 years. And uh, is is uh, you know annoys a lot of people because he interrupts and he's you know very <laughs> very opinionated. But he had Brooks on the show, and it's clear that he respects Brooks uh, because the amount of time that Brooks was on the show. And I think that uh, Raga pointed out an article a couple of weeks ago about character and morality. And um, Brooks is very hot on the idea that we are a society that is becoming increasingly empty. Of 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 compassion, uh, and that you know we don't in the community of MindPod Network. That seems ridiculous because we know so many people and they communicate with us, and we know from satsang and from meditation and yoga and everything else that there are so many wonderful people in the world who are just only interested in altruism and helping those less fortunate or those disenfranchised. But that's a bubble in a way, because what Brooks is talking about is a vast number of people out there who have been trained in selfishness. And, um, you know, that word selfish, uh, Kim Kardashian West, her new book is called Selfish. And <laughs> Kanye invented the, the book based on selfies. Now, I don't want to put them down. I'm sure they do charitable work and so forth. But um, selfishness is what Brooks is, is fighting against in many ways and saying that, you know, just because you're a fiscal conservative, a Republican does not mean that you can just, you know, abdicate from compassion and from helping people. And um, Matthews, Chris Matthews' interview with him was extremely rich because you could see the respect between these two men of different parties, different persuasions. But what bound them together was uh, a new look at how we treat the incredibly, incredible um, disparity of income in the United States. And the fact that some people, I worked a couple of years ago, state New York, on a movie in a place called New Lebanon, which is near Albany. And um, it's, it's, you know, a two and a half hour drive from, out of Manhattan where the wealthy people live. And the people in that part of, of New York State were living literally like a third world country. And I mean, it wasn't out of, you know, they weren't doing it out of choice. Uh, you go to a mall and everything was closed except beer a, a store called beer and next to it a store called guns and ammo and that was it 
and a, and, and a Walmart's a 30-minute drive away. And people living in, t in really poor condition in shacks, uh, not even being able to afford to drive a car because of gas prices, and feeding their children on the cheapest fast food available and, and having obesity and crime and so forth uh, in there. And, um, you know, Rand Paul said yesterday that crime was not so much a social problem as a spiritual problem. And, you know, you may hate Rand Paul or whatever, but I admire his stand against the NSA very much. I think that he's right. And he frequently says things that blow me away, that the crime and disparity that we're seeing in America is a moral problem, therefore a spiritual problem. And, um, you know, Brooks is, I think, part of the solution in a way because he's just not your uh, rubber stamp template uh, bleeding heart liberal. And yet he is making comments all the time, and his book is about this. That was a long-winded answer. To mm. Well, uh, the connection between the tribal story, <laughs> we just the tribe up on the uh, Upper East Side, and the real, aside from the f making fun of, of it in one way, the reality is, as I said before, what is being passed on to these children? This kind of an example. And, and so the connection to, Brooks wrote this article called Building Spiritual Capital. And, um, and, and basically, uh, he, he talks a lot uh, here um, about the, uh, the, the argument is that spiritual awareness is innate and that it is an important component in human development. And uh, and he defines spirituality. Uh, this particular he's referring to um, a guy named Miller, um, and he he defines that is uh, an inner sense of relationship to a higher power that is loving and guiding. It's a practical, very practical definition of of uh, spiritual awareness. We would probably be a little more highfalutin about how we might define that. But I think it's a, it is a very practical and uh, uh, powerful uh, definition of that term. Uh, different people can conceive of this higher power as God, nature, spirit, the universe, or ju just a general oneness of being. Mm. And I think that the oneness of being is, uh, is, is something that we've talked about before and, and and of course our our close uh, friend and mentor Ramdas talks about all the time and then he talks about children and this is where like the concern is for for this this uh, east side tribe and what's being passed on and and, and then i i read this and and i th it makes me think and he talks about most children are born with a natural sense of the spiritual. If they find a dead squirrel in the playground, they understand there is something sacred there, and they will most likely give it a respectful burial. They have a natural sense of the oneness of creation and a sense of transcendent non-material, of the transcendent non-material realm. And he cites this guy Miller, uh, who had studies that the strength of a child's spiritual awareness is 29% because of broad genetic heritability. 
24% family environment, 47% because of a person's unique individual environment. I'm not quite so sure what that means, but I think there's also a karmic uh, uh, proposition here that I would say has got to be part of this uh, that they don't talk about, but maybe that's part of the 47% unique individual environment which goes back beyond this lifetime. But um, this is the interesting part. Spiritual awareness surges in adolescence about the same time as depression and other threats to well-being. Isn't that interesting? Can you? I can totally relate with that. Mm. That's what was happening to me. I mean, when I read this, I, I oh yeah, that's what was happening to me, as mm. I uh, yeah, became you know became uh, a teenager, and severely depressed about this what this world was about and why I was here and and so on. And and as we said, and all the way back in our first podcast, uh, I had and and this is going to connect with the next little article, uh, but I had an ineffable experience with uh, music with John Coltrane when I was 15, 16 years old that helped save. And now I read this article and I look back and I go, right, that connected me to that spiritual awareness that gave me some kind of trust and hope. So uh, um, this idea that um, there's a common physiology, not psychology, physiology, Underlying depression and spirituality. In other words, teenagers commonly suffer a loss of meaning, confidence, and identity. And some of them do drugs, alcohol, gang activity, pregnancy. Others are surrounded by people who have cultivated their spiritual instincts. And this is the concern when... I mean, again, we don't want to generalize, but the the tribe on the Upper East Side... Are they cultivating their children's uh, spiritual instincts when they have this other kind of really gross, backward uh, identification with separation of, of, of men and women and and subservience, which it blows my mind. You know, I mean, God, well, Gloria Steinem should look at this and go, is this possibly happening again in this day and age? Um, so, well, um, adolescence... Uh, is it? Is it? It is. Huh? Well, yeah, it is. Um, they call them helicopter parents, right? Um, they're just constantly hovering over their children, trying to get them into the right ballet class, the right soccer class, the right this, that, the other. Yeah. And um, one can understand that. Uh, you know, there's a certain caring attitude there, but it's become so competitive and so expensive that it seems to cultivate more of a separation than of exactly. a community. Exactly. And that's dangerous. And someone wrote on Facebook um, yesterday, or maybe, I don't know, it was on Facebook, it was probably from a newspaper, speaking to James Inhofe, um, who I just have to learn to love. Um, who's the head of the, I, God knows what, the Energy Committee, whatever, who totally and absolutely denies climate change. And someone wrote to them and said, well, what about your progeny? What about your grandchildren? Aren't you in, uh, at all concerned that there may not be ice in the North and South Poles? I, if they live in a coastal city, are you not concerned that in, not now, 
because we're experiencing some stuff, but wait 50 years. Are you concerned that your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren may be living in domes, wearing masks, with no knowledge of the natural world, with no rhinoceroses, few tigers, no clean water, no clean... Are you concerned about that, Mr. Senator Inhofe? Because if you're not, you're a fiend out of hell. I love you, but you're a fiend out of hell. Because if you're not concerned about those children, then you're a selfish bastard. And um, that just doesn't apply to Inhofe. It applies to anyone who – you don't have to believe in climate control totally. I mean, you can argue about it, you can debate about it, whatever, but investigate it. He's the guy that's in charge in, in the Senate. Okay. He's in charge of this particular thing. And that's where I draw the line. And, um, you know, I'm not much of a social activist in terms of going to the streets and everything. But that what you're talking about, Raghu, is this thing about the selfishness deal. Uh, you know, which is not be here now. It's be here now and forget that someone else will be there then and be here now <laughs> in 25 or 30 years who's made of the same stuff as you. And, uh, you know, let's not rant much, much more, but we've got to be concerned about this stuff. And, and, and most of the Buddhist teachers and bhakti masters that we know are, are not averse to social activism. They're averse to rage and violence. Uh, but we're learning more and more and more about uh, people um, that we know, like Jack Kornfield, for instance. Jack Kornfield, who is a, a brilliant teacher and a pure Buddhist, one of the great uh, bringers of, 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 of the teachings to the West. He is a social activist. He cares about people and does things to help people. So, um, you know, rant is over. Mm. But um, Well, just to... Uh this all ties together, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it all ties together. Uh, because what you're talking about, we're we're really talking about uh, what are we leaving as a legacy for future generations, right? All right, and uh, and and we we're talking about the Upper East Side tribe and what they're leaving and the and the, the level of selfishness that's involved in the kind of lives that they have created, uh, these kind of family lives. Um, and uh, so this, he goes further, he says, innate spiritual capacities can wither unless cultivated the way innate math faculties can go undeveloped without uh, instruction. Loving families nurture these capacities, especially when parents speak explicitly about spiritual quests. How important is that? I mean, that ignoring spiritual development in the public square is like ignoring intellectual, physical, or social development. It is to amputate people in a fundamental way, leading to more depression, alienation, separation, and misery. And so when I say, when I joke about the end of the world after reading that article about the Upper East Side Tribe, in another way, it's not a joke, because <laughs> what, what, what are, what's being left? What, what heritage? What are we inheriting? What are these children inheriting? And, and here's something else, Dave, that uh, is, is along a similar line, and it's something else that needs to be nurtured. And it's, uh, um, it's an article by uh, uh, Paul Piff and Deitcher Keltner, and it's, about, uh, it's called Why Do We Experience Awe? And uh, and it's very similar uh, because they end up uh, 
they talk about how uh, this has been uh, another thing that has been pushed to the side with uh, within our our family structures and so on, um, and and ah, uh, uh, it's like when you get goosebumps when we experience awe. That often positive feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends our understanding of the world. Again. Both you and I have talked about this. We've given so many examples of our own experience with it. Uh, and uh, I've never quite heard it put this way. We found that awe helps bind us to others, motivating us to act in collaborative ways that enable strong groups and cohesive communities. It's really very much along the same line as, uh, as what Brooks is talking about here. Mm. Absolutely, in terms of... Uh, building spiritual capital um uh, they they did experiments where where uh people found that participants who report experiencing more awe in their lives who felt more regular wonder and beauty in the world around them were more generous to the stranger okay um studies have sought to understand why awe arouses altrui- altruism of different kinds one answer is that awe imbues people with a different sense of themselves, one that is smaller, more humble, and uh, smaller, I don't know if that's the right, more humble and part of something larger. You could make the case that our culture today is awe-deprived. Adults spend more and more time working and consuming and less time outdoors with other people doing things that inspire awe. Uh, we believe that odd deprivation has had a hand in broad societal shift that has been widely observed over the past 50 years. People have become more individualistic, more self-focused, more materialistic, and less connected to others. To reverse this trend, we suggest that people insist on experiencing more everyday awe to actively seek out what gives them goosebumps be it looking at trees, night skies, patterns of wind on water, or the quotidian nobility of others. All of us will be better off for it. Yeah, it's, you're, you're so right. I mean, I didn't, we're, all, I, we're you, all infected a little bit too, you know, because I, I recently had a bit of a health scare, which turned out to be not one. And uh, when I went to the, um, it was a cardiologist, and he told me that, all my fears were unfounded based on tests and blood tests and calcium scores and stress tests and many, many things that I went through over a period of three weeks. And when I left that office, it was sort of humorous because I was like one of those people in the movies or on television. You know those people who run off and then kick themselves in the air? <laughs> the little thing that, I can't do that. But I felt that way because I'd been, um, I'd been told that I was fine. And I felt this incredible sort of awe at just being well, uh, which most of us take for granted until it's not the case. Mm. And, um, you know, many, many people, it's not just getting older, you, you know, things start to fail or whatever, but uh, many people, young people, children, there are ill people everywhere. And uh, when, you're, when you're sick, you either get very selfish or very compassionate somehow. In my case, I think I got very selfish. But when I realized that I was well, the sky looked bluer. Uh, the street that I came up from, the doctors, was not an awe-inspiring street by any means. 
It was really a, a humble street with a very humble pizzeria at the end of it. Not a good one, by the way. I tried it many times. Never gets better. Pizza sucks. And yet I looked at that pizza place and I looked at the Thai restaurant and the unisex haircutter in the same little mall. And it just delighted me. And, and it's only because I'd been, you know, sort of given the governor's pardon. You know, the governor said, okay, you're not. You're not going to have a heart attack. You're fine. Everything's cool. And I got suddenly awed by the universe. The question is not whether I got awed by the universe at that point. It's why is one not in awe the rest of the time? And it's those filters. Those filters that constantly are saying, you know, pay this, pay that, call her, call this, check this, look at that, do this. You got to do your life and you got to live a life and you got to pay the bills and everything. But it seems to obfuscate too much this thing that children have naturally and you know and some people may be annoyed about this what i'm about to say but when i first took psychedelics the awe was automatic automatic awe that i couldn't i look at a goldfish i look at a piece of stone it's like ramdas says he looks at that dirty piece of rug and he sees god mm. and we're fortunate to have men and women like ramdas around to remind us that ordinariness is just as full of god as is St. Patrick's Cathedral or the, or the, um, the hat that the Pope wears or even uh, the Arunchna Hill where Ramana Maharshi was, the people parade around. It's all there all the time. And, and we forget it. We just forget it. Sometimes we have to because we have to be pragmatic and we have to do certain things. We have to drive. You can't drive in awe all the time. you know. But it's just gone. It's gone for so many. And the bored teenager, I hate to point at the teenager, but it's very hard to say to a bored teenager, don't be fucking bored. What's the matter with you? There are people living in, in Mali and Somalia and Syria and Iraq who are living in abject, horrible conditions. And you're living and you're upset that you don't have a new Lexus. Get the fuck out of here. But you can't really say that to this adolescent who's got this sort of inbuilt problem, which comes from those factors you spoke about, Raghu. What do you do? How do you deal with that person? You really have to work at it. You really have to work at it. And, and it's, to bring back that awe, it's weird, isn't it? Because awesome is the word of the last 25 years. Man, that's awesome. And they say it about a good you know, cupcake as well as a U2 concert. And that's fine if behind that statement, wow, that's awesome, man. There's really true feeling that it is indeed awesome. And unfortunately, the word itself has become somewhat empty also. So let's cultivate the awesome with real awe. Um, yeah. All right. I like that, Dave. Stuff, you know. We didn't even get to some of the other things, which proves that we, we're trying to be um, a little bit deeper, deeper or detailed about what we're getting into here. Because Raghu started off with this being an end-of-the-world thing, and it is funny, but it's actually really serious, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, I didn't even realize when I started to... Until we got into it, the the real connection here and is what we are leaving for our children, all the way from the environment, uh, environmental stuff you talked about, Imhoff and all that, which is of supreme importance. But I think just as important uh, is the um, what Brooks calls spiritual capital that we have to engender uh, in our families and pass on. And I think that uh, this this awe uh this this little 
article about how awe inspires altruism and connectivity uh, is super important. And I, I would go so far as to say, hey, everybody out there, let's do, let's do some experiments. Let's hear from you about, uh, about this particular subject of mm. awe and things that, ins- that, have, that you've connected that awe with that awe through just a, yeah, a night sky, anything, a meeting a person who was kind and generous. I mean, uh, David and I could go on and on. It, of course, the easiest thing, and, if, you know, and we did mention psychedelics, and that is instant awe. And then there are, are, are cases of just um, doing a yoga posture perfectly, or in that one moment. It's just awe-inspiring. It's um, uh, a piece of music. It's uh, where you don't, you're walking in the woods and your mind stops that monkey mind stuff and you are actually just here and now walking. That's awe. I think we, sh- we should even take the, we should put this in the app, Dave, somehow. There should be an awe part of the app. I'm going to talk yeah. to the developer. How do we, how do we connect a, a daily awesome act? Cultivate awesome. Cultivate the awesome. That's beautiful that you just put together. So, uh, but we, we do have to, um, this is something we need to certainly need to pass on to next generations is, is connectivity to our spiritual capital. And I, I love that term that uh, Brooks came up with and, uh, it's, it's so, so important. And, and in, in our small, tiny little way, this whole thing with MindPod and what we've wanted to do, which uh, when you go up to Indiegogo, you'll. I wrote a little. Did you read the little thing I wrote, David, about yes. how 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 this whole thing came to to us, me, and then you and I when I called you and said, "Why don't we do this, Mind Rolling?" And yeah. uh, and I I I said it started out with Ramdas wanting to share what it. He couldn't do anything. He was compelled to share when he came back from India his experience to give that to everybody that he met. And I said, so in a, uh, you know, over these decades, here we all, here we are now with MindPod Network. And it's a bit of full circle that that impulse to share is what MindPod is about. And the idea isn't, it's not us sharing with you. It's us sharing together and uh, moving this forward so that we, there are, everyone has access to this incredible information, teachings, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, and that can be paid forward into next generations. And really that's what this is all about. And uh, it's all kidding aside, uh, we would love for you to help us develop this even further, and that's what this crowdfunding is about. Jesus, I slipped right into this You're whole good. thing. Good. I mean... <laughs> you know, Duncan Trussell said on a recent podcast we did with him, I was, I was um, at your place, and he said something to the effect of, let's not forget how awesome it is that we can do these podcasts. And... Uh, and, and sort of impart information, both humorous and non-humorous, both serious and non-serious, whatever, and get it out there 
and we're just people. We're not, you know, Walter Cronkite anymore. We're not, right. you know, um, uh, Johnny Carson. We're not, we're not even Carl Sagan. It's no longer top down. We've democratized uh, communications, and and the best end of that is, it seems to me, is is is, you know, communicating information that helps the planet on some level. And Duncan, who's a very, you know, I mean, he can be quite acerbic, can't he? Uh, but when he says something that's beautiful, it really res- it resonates tremendously. And he was very insistent on that podcast of saying, I just, it's a miracle, this. It's a miracle. And he was really talking about himself, too. You know, that I can, I, Duncan Trussell, can go out there and talk to people. And they'll listen. Mm-hmm. And thousands of people will, for better or worse, hear what I'm saying. Whereas just a matter of a few years ago, this was just not happening. Yeah, It was just not happening. It was a small elite of people who had grasped the broadcast media and so on. And yes, I mean, there were wonderful writers and authors and painters and all the great artists and communicators and journalists. They were there. But now it's, we, we're, we've got our hands on this a little bit. And um, if we have our hands on it, so do you. And that's, mm-hmm. again, MindPod Network uh, is trying to, um, uh, you know, sort of expand that. And, um, you know, eventually uh, one of the perks, which we won't go into now, but we'll go into the next podcast maybe, is uh, to participate in the podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it would be a, an honor to have people join us and help us at the same time, uh, you know, uh, grow the thing. And, and, and it's like a, a, a racing horse, this, isn't it? I mean, the horse is racing and I'm not good on horses. You know, we want to make sure they stay on the horse. And that horse is the expansion of communications yeah. about things that seem to matter. And um, in the world that we live in, which, which you know, we, we don't have to tell you out there how dark it seems sometimes. Um, you know, all you have to do is watch CNN for 12 minutes, eight minutes. And you can see their version of the world, which may not be accurate. But there's stuff going on out there which ain't great. And uh, we need some counterpoint to that. So help us. Help us with MPN. That's it, Dave. All right. We are at the end of our sponsored hour. And the idea, of course, is to, by the way, everybody's to get sponsors. Is we, 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 haven't, we don't even have the wherewithal to get anybody to, to, to lead the charge on that. And that's also part of you know, hiring people to, uh, to help us make this uh, available uh, to everybody gratis. So thank you. Dave, it's so great to have you back, for God's Thank sake. Great uh, to be back. Yeah, and uh, we will uh, we'll see you all next week. And uh, yeah, think about the awesome. Think about the awesome. And we'll uh, let's uh, we'll further that as we go along. See you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>